The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Okay, where are we? Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. The works of the Lord are great, studied by all who have pleasure in them. His work is honorable and glorious, and his righteousness endures forever. He has made his wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. He has given food to those who fear him. He will be ever mindful of his covenant. He has declared to his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of his hands are verity and justice. All his precepts are sure. They stand fast forever and ever and are done in truth and uprightness. He has sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. Okay, we are about to embark on the book of Judges. Um, I was thinking about this uh, yesterday and this morning, and I was thinking, before I get into the book of Judges, you know, if somebody new is watching these sermons and says, I want to see what the book of Judges is about, and they're going to hear me reading Hebrew during the uh, sermons and analyzing the Hebrew, and so people immediately jump to the conclusion that I can read and speak Hebrew, and that is not the case, okay? If somebody presents me with a Hebrew document, I can't read it. All right, I would send it to Sergio and say, can you please read this for me? I can read it very slowly and poorly, like maybe on a first grade level, okay? I don't know what a noun and a verb is when I'm looking at it. I'm just reading words and it has no meaning to me. The same is true with Greek. I can read them on like a first grade level. I taught myself to read the, the sounds and the, the words, but I have no comprehension of that. When I evaluate a sermon, I have to have a parsing guide for everything that I do in that sermon. A parsing guide is what type of a word is this? Is it an adverb? Is it a verb? Is it a noun? And then it breaks it down into is it first person? Is it third person? Is it perfect? Is it imperfect? Is it on and on? All of that information I have to study for every single word that I present to you. And that's why sermons can take up to, as this past week, 15 hours to type one sermon. Okay? Uh, Hedico was wondering, should she bring me dinner on uh, uh, Monday night while I was sermon typing? And I said, no. And, you know, she'll come up with food during the day. And I'm like, don't bring that. I'm, I don't want to do anything but type this sermon. But when you hear me read the Hebrew, it's because I have studied every single nuance of it. But I do not speak Hebrew. I do not speak uh, Greek very well. I can, you know, communicate on a minor level with my friends back there. And uh, I can get the you know, the basics, the nuances are beyond me. Okay, so I just want to make that understood to everybody so that they don't go out and, you know, misrepresent me and say, oh, well, Charlie speaks and reads Hebrew and Greek. I study Hebrew and Greek every single week to present these to you. I will not ever present something to you that I have not fully studied, and I am 100% sure that it says what it says. 
And Sergio will tell you this. Despite my lack of knowledge in Hebrew and Greek, modern Hebrew is completely different than ancient Hebrew. And he will often come to me and we'll talk about it and he will side with my conclusion. Happened last week with uh, one particular issue. So uh, languages are not just something so simple as saying, I know this language. And listen, I know Korean people. When I taught at the Korean church for years, I knew Korean people that could not speak one word of English that knew English better than I will ever, ever know English. And that's the same with um, people that go to Hebrew and Greek school in college. They won't be able to speak it at all. They know how to mechanically break down that language in a way that Sergio and Rhoda would never be able to do. Okay, because they know the language without needing to know all those intricacies. So just because somebody can or can't do something does not mean that he's not proficient at it. My proficiency comes from study. So I want to make that clear to everybody, just in case somebody is starting with judges and doesn't understand what's going on. Everything has been researched. Everything has been verified when I do these. We are in Judges chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. And I was saying this morning um, to the church that I was completely surprised with how these verses came out, verses 1 through 8. I wasn't expecting it, and I was so excited. I've been waiting to give this sermon just because the typology is so cool. But and you may not find it that way, but I found this to be just a very, very cool typological uh, picture of what has been happening in redemptive history. Okay? But... Um, we're reading Judges 1, 1 through 8 first. Now at the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall be first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. So Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me to my allotted territory that we might fight against the Canaanites. I will likewise go with you to your allotted territory. And Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they killed 10,000 men at Bezek. And they found Adoni Bezek in Bezek and fought against him, and they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Then Adoni Bezek fled, and they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. And Adoni Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to gather scraps under my table as I have done, so God has repaid me. Then they brought him to Jerusalem, and there he died. Now the children of Judah fought against Jerusalem and took it. They struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. Okay, this is entitled, Judah Shall Go Up. There are several mysteries concerning the book of Judges. In one way, it is the simplest of all the books to read. It involves interesting stories and curious oddities that excite the mind. R.C. Sproul once talked about being at a Jewish camp for children one year. He wanted to read the Bible to them since he knew that he couldn't read from the New Testament. He chose the book of Judges. For a young mind, it has all of the excitement of a first-rate Hollywood movie. Samson and Delilah. Oh, my. Samson bringing down the walls of the Temple of Dagon. Ooh. 300 men defeating the vast army of the Midianites. Hooray! The stories and judges are filled with exciting details, but they also carefully reveal the underlying problem with man and the grace of God towards his people. Such great things are ahead of us as we enter into this new and exciting part of God's word. Our text verse comes from Hebrews 11 
It's verse 32. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah. Before I go on, I'd like to say, most of you know this, but maybe some of you didn't hear this, is that Doug over in Ireland, who does a painting for every one of our sermons, had a heart attack. And he was in the hospital, and while he was in the hospital, he was painting paintings for our sermons, and he does the text verses as well. So hats off to him. All four of these men are characters in Judges that I just read you, namely Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah. Three of them held the position of judge, but all three of them were involved in fighting the Lord's battles. However, there are difficulties that we will face in this book, along with all of the excitement. Adam Clark notes the following. The chronology of the book of Judges is extremely embarrassed and difficult, and there is no agreement among learned men concerning it. When the deliverances and consequent periods of rest so frequently mentioned in this book took place cannot be satisfactorily ascertained. Rather than the chronology being embarrassed, it is more embarrassing because of our limitations. It is not God's word which is convoluted, but our understanding of it. We are the ones who struggle to figure out what is going on, how it all fits together, and how this book ties in with the rest of the Bible. It is embarrassing for us to evaluate it and later find out we were wrong on this point or that. But it is better to dive in and search it out than to shy away from it and not attempt to figure out what is going on. The Lord willing, over the next 21 chapters of the book of Judges, I will do my utmost to not embarrass myself as I provide you with the details contained in them. While typing this sermon, I found out that I had an error in something I presented in the Joshua sermons. I will clarify it as we go. It's a rather small error, but I apologize to the Lord many, many times as I typed this sermon. We should strive for perfection as we evaluate this gloriously marvelous word. This is because it is God's superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got three thoughts for you today. The first is the book of Judges, an introduction. The book of Judges is the seventh book of the Holy Bible. Depending on how the Old Testament is divided, it is sometimes classified as one, the second book of the section sometimes called the writings. Two, one of the historical books, or three, a portion of the former prophets. Jesus uses this last division in Luke 24 when he says, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses, and the prophets, that section there, and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend Scripture. Judges follows Joshua. Its Hebrew name is Sefer Shoftim, literally book judges. It is named based on the period of Israel's history that was ruled by judges rather than kings. It is often claimed that this was a period of Israel living in a pure theocracy. But such a notion implies that the people are living for God and under his rule in an obedient and heartfelt manner. This is hardly the state of Israel at this time. Rather, a state of apostasy is noted at the turn of every page. As far as dating when the book was written, there is dispute. However, the conservative and traditional dating is based upon internal clues found within the book. 
First, a repeated phrase concerning Israel having no king looks ahead to a time when Israel will have a king. Saul was Israel's first king, as recorded in 1 Samuel. Therefore, its writing would be at that point or after. In Judges 1, it notes that Jebusites were living in Jerusalem. However, David conquered Jerusalem in 1004 BC. Therefore, it would predate that time frame. Likewise, a reference to Canaanites living in Gezer hints at a time before that city was given to Solomon as a gift in 1 Kings 9 verse 6. Also, there is a reference to Bethlehem, Judah in Judges 17 and 19 and also in Ruth 1 and 1 Samuel 17. As this occurs nowhere else in that manner, it seems to indicate that the phrase was limited to a specific period around the time of the prophet Samuel the final judge of Israel. One verse that tends towards a much later dating for the book is Judges 18, verse 30, where it says, Then the children of Dan set up for themselves the carved image, and Jonathan the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, and his sons were priests to the tribe of Dan until the day of the captivity of the land. If this is referring to the exile of the inhabitants under Tiglath-Pileser III in 733 32 BC or their final deportation under Sargon in 722-21 BC, then it means the book, or at least this note in the book, was written hundreds and hundreds of years later. However, this could be a prophetic announcement of a future captivity because of Israel's apostasy, or it could refer to some other event that occurred. What is most likely, and I am certain that this is the case, is revealed from an evaluation of the word translated as captivity. The word is gala. It signifies to uncover or to remove, but it is widely translated as reveal, appear, discover, disclose, make known, and so on. This word, gala, is used in 1 Samuel 4 at the time of the captivity of the ark. Here it says in 1 Samuel 4, Then she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed, gala, from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed, gala, from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Thus, this verse that seemingly points to a later date may be the author's reference to this event. If so, it would make Samuel a likely candidate for having authored the book of Judges. No author is named within the book, but Samuel the prophet is traditionally considered to be the inspired author. The Talmud ascribes authorship of both Judges and Samuel, which in Christian Bibles is divided into one and two Samuel to the prophet Samuel. As for the dating of the actual contents of the book, it follows between the events of the book of Joshua and the reign of Saul, Israel's first king. This is a period of about 300 years. However, a seeming inconsistency is found in Paul's words of Acts 13. It says there, now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. And after that, he gave them judges for about, here it is, 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. 
The problem with this is that it says in 1 Kings 6 verse 1 that it was 480 years from the Exodus until starting to build the temple in Jerusalem. This would make the Bible's chronology seemingly impossible to reconcile because of the kingships of Saul and David, along with the 40 years in the wilderness at the events of Joshua. However, the words of Paul are not speaking of a set chronology of one judge leading to the next. Rather, the rule of some judges overlapped the rule of other judges. Taking the time of each judge's rule as recorded in Judges and in 1 Samuel and then adding them together reveals what Paul was speaking of. 8 plus 40 plus 18 plus 80 plus 20 plus 40 plus 7 plus 40 plus 3 plus 23 plus 22 plus 18 plus 6 plus 7 plus 10 plus 8 plus 40 plus 20 plus 40. This totals 450 years. Thus, Paul's reference is to the cumulative years of rule by the judges, even when they overlap, not a chronological dating. As far as a historical context, the book is given to reveal the time when Israel was ruled by judges rather than a king. The tribes were loosely held together, but were tightly knit enough to unite when necessary to weed out evil among them. This is especially seen towards the end of the book when the tribe of Benjamin commits a great offense in the land. From a theological perspective, the events of the book reveal that though there are human judges within the land, the Lord, meaning Jehovah, is the true and ultimate judge over the events that occur. For example, during the time of Jephthah, conflict arose between Israel and the people of Ammon. In his words to them, he says the following, Therefore, I have not sinned against you, but you wronged me by fighting against me. May the Lord, the judge, render judgment this day between the children of Israel and the people of Ammon. Other internal clues concerning the Lord's rule are seen within the book as well. For example, Deborah is said to have judged while sitting under a palm tree, a symbol of uprightness and righteousness in Judges 4. The passage will then refer to the righteous acts of the Lord, that's Judges 5 verse 11, as the true judge of Israel. In Judges 6, the next major account in the book, it says the following, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. The Lord sat under an Elah, or terebinth tree, indicating strength. The passage then builds on the idea of the might of the judge whom the Lord had appointed to deliver the people. Paying attention to these types of internal clues will provide the reader with the means of understanding the theology that lies behind the narrative. The people are prone to wander, and the judges are selected to return them to the Lord. The people are subdued by their enemies, and the judges are appointed to free them from their plight. The people are faithless to the covenant. And the Lord remains faithful to it, even when the judge himself is weak or otherwise ineffective. An important note that must be included is that the book of Ruth is noted as occurring during the time of the judges. That's stated in Ruth 1 verse 1. As such, this time frame is not only concerned with the preservation of Israel as a people, but like all of their history, it is carefully watched over to lead to the Davidic rule of Israel and thus to the coming of the Messiah. Even if veiled throughout 
all of what occurs, the anticipation is that of the coming of the true judge in his incarnation. And that leads to the redemptive context of the book. Judges, like Joshua, demonstrates the faithfulness of the Lord in keeping his promises to the people. They are settled in the land, they act contrary to the will of the Lord, and he takes action to instruct them through correction. And yet, he remains faithful to the covenant promises he has agreed to. The key thought of Judges is the twice-repeated statement from Judges 21-25, also Judges 17-6, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Even while Israel did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, the Lord always upheld his side of the covenant. This was to ensure that the people would continue until the coming of the Messiah, and thus to the redemption of the world from the power of sin. A key passage that encompasses this thought is found in these words from Judges 10. So the Lord said to the children of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the people of Ammon and from the Philistines? Also the Sidonians and Amalekites and Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I delivered you from their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore I will deliver you no more. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of distress. And the children of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems best to you. Only deliver us this day, we pray. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. Sounds like us, doesn't it? Sounds just like us. Being the seventh book of the Bible, it is of value to consider the number as it is revealed in Scripture. Seven is the number of spiritual perfection. Obvious pictures of Christ, the epitome of spiritual perfection, will be seen in the book of Judges. And yet, God will use imperfect people to accomplish this. As such, those highlighted in Judges are only typical of Christ, and the book is merely a typological representation of the greater judge, Jesus Christ. There is much more that could be said about this book, and commentaries abound for you to consider. As for us, it's time to enter into this treasure of God's Word and begin seeking out its secrets. May the Lord bless our time in the book of Judges. The enemies are out there, but they are defeated. The victory is assured as we head out. Through the power of the cross, they are unseated, and so to the Lord we give a victory shout. Every tribe and tongue and nation is included in the deal. Human hearts filled with elation because of the precious seal. How grateful we are for what you have done. Thank you, O God, for our Lord Jesus. We have restoration through the giving of your Son. Such marvelous things you have done for us. Thank God for Jesus. We all fall away, and then when times get tougher, when times get bad, we have to rush off to church or rush off to the Bible study and get our lives corrected again. Instead, let us pursue the Word every day of our life. Let's stay close to the Lord so we don't have to be like Israel, who constantly fell away and had to be called back to the Lord. Our first thought today is big thumbs and toes. It's verses 1 through 8. Now, after the death of Joshua, it came to pass. The book actually begins as several of the books of the Old Testament begin, with a conjunction connected to a verb, vehi achare mot Yehoshua, and it was, after death, Joshua. 
Beginning with the word and, it signifies that what is presented is merely a continuation of the same story that we have been reading. God is revealing to us wonders, unfolding them in a logical sequence which, at times, may or may not be chronological, but they fit in a fashion as orderly as if they are chronological. In this case, it is a chronological event, following directly after the recorded death and burial of Joshua as Joshua ended. This same and begins the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Joshua, Ruth 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Esther, Ezekiel, and Jonah. Beginning this way is intended to show us the continuation of a thought process that began earlier. The note of the deaths of Joshua and Eliezer were recorded at the end of Joshua, our passage last week. Now it came to pass after these things that Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him within the border of his inheritance at Timnath-serah, which is in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gaash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had known all the works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. The bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel had brought up out of Egypt, they buried at Shechem, in the plot of ground which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of silver, and which had become an inheritance of the children of Joseph. And Eliezer, the son of Aaron, died. They buried him in a hill belonging to Phinehas, his son, which was given to him in the mountains of Ephraim. It is with this context that the words, and it was, find their meaning. It is at this point in the history of the redemptive narrative, verse 1 continues, that the children of Israel asked the Lord, Va'yishalu b'nei Israel be'yehovah, and asked sons Israel in Yehovah. The first thing to notice is the repetition of and here. And it was after death Joshua and asked sons Israel in Yehovah. John Lang takes this as cause and consequence. Hence, he sees it as being right after the death of Joshua, they asked. As for the term in Yehovah, it is an unusual phrase and it is debated what the meaning of asking in Yehovah is. Some think it means via the high priest who consulted the Urim and Thummim. That seems likely. In Numbers 27, it said the following. And the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, with you, a man in whom is the spirit, and lay your hand on him. Set him before Eliezer, the priest, and before all the congregation, and inaugurate him in their sight. And you shall give some of your authority to him, that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient." He shall stand before Eliezer the priest, who shall inquire before the Lord for him by the judgment of the Urim. At his word, they shall go out, and at his word, they shall come in, and he and all the children of Israel with him, all the congregation. The words, by the judgment of the Urim, are bemishpat ha-Urim, in judgment, the Urim. Hence, to inquire in Jehovah would be in the judgment of the Urim, because it is the Lord who responds according to the Urim, the lights, the sons of Israel were, verse 1 continues, saying, who shall be first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The reference to the enemy here is singular. 
לאמור מי יעלה לנו אל הכנעני בתחילה להילחם בו. To say, who shall ascend to us unto the Canaanite in the beginning to fight in him. The word lacham signifies to fight, war, eat, devour, and so on. It comes from a root signifying to feed on. Thus one gets the imagery of the savageness of war. The timing of these words is debated. The verse started with the thought of this being after the death of Joshua. However, most scholars are adamant that the contents of Judges 1 through Judges 2 verse 8 are referring to events that have already occurred, and they're wrong. For example, Joshua 2.6 specifically mentions Joshua dismissing the people, which is in accord with Joshua 24 verse 28. Likewise, the portions of the account of Caleb in Judges 1, 12 through 20 have already been recorded in Joshua 15. However, it was argued at that time that the true timing of the event is probably now in Judges, but that it was recorded in Joshua 15 for the sake of the deed of inheritance. Whether that was a correct analysis or not, these overlapping events do not need to be taken chronologically but categorically. In other words, things are being brought forward from Joshua or they were brought back from judges to meet the needs of what is necessary to fit a greater picture that is being developed. Having said this, there is no reason to assume that the events described are not after the death of Joshua. In the wars under Joshua, the nation fought as a whole. The question now submitted to the Lord is who shall go up first? The implication is that each tribe is going to individually continue removing the Canaanites from the land in their own inheritances. This is something that would occur after the death of Joshua. Verse 2, And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Vayomer Yehovah Yehuda Yaale, And said, Yehovah, Judah shall ascend. The word ascend is used differently at times. Here, it is to engage in battle against a defended position. As defended positions are normally elevated to obtain the advantage, those attacking are considered as going up. In this case, the tribes have asked for the Lord's determination as to who should engage first, and his response is Judah. As Judah means praise, it forms a pun. Because the question is asked of the Lord, the implied words are, Who shall ascend first before you, Lord? The answer, praise, shall go first before me. And the reason is, verse 2 continues, Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. The battle is assured, and the praise shall go forth, anticipated by the tribe whose name is praise. The same symbolism was seen when the tribes marched in the wilderness. Judah was the first to break camp and it led the procession through all their wanderings. Praise of the Lord led the way. This thought is in anticipation of the coming Messiah as well. In Genesis 49, it said the following, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Those words look to the coming of the Messiah, who will be the ultimate expression of destroying the enemies of God's people. Judah being first is a reminder of that. With that determination made, Judah will do what is logical by inviting their brother tribe to join them. Verse 3, So Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me to my allotted territory, that we may fight against the Canaanites. Vayomer Yehuda leshimon 
אחיו, עלה איתי בגורלי ונלחמה בכנעני. And said Judah to Simeon, his brother, ascend with me in my lot, and we will fight in the Canaanite. Here, the use of ascend is not specifically speaking of the fighting to take place as it was in the previous verse. Rather, much of Judah is in the mountainous areas, but Simeon's lot is in the lower areas of the Negev and the Shephelah. Hence, though they are speaking about fighting, the terminology will be different for Simeon in the next clause because of this. Judah and Simeon were both sons of Leah, so there is already a special bond between them. However, what is more germane at this time is that Simeon's tribal inheritance is contained entirely within the borders of Judah. Thus, it makes complete sense that they would work together to subdue the remaining inhabitants. Verse 3 continues, And I will likewise go with you to your allotted territory. And Simeon went with him. And I will go, also I, with you in your lot, and went with him, Simeon. The agreement was made, and it would have been best for both of them, but especially for Simeon. His numbers were small, and he had to travel through Judah's territory to reach his own. Simeon means he who hears. Verse 4, then Judah went up. And the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. And ascended Judah and gave Jehovah the Canaanite and the Perizzite into their hand. The verb is singular. Thus it means that either Judah went up alone or that Simeon is included as a part of the force of Judah. As for the names of the enemies... These are the same two groups mentioned at the time of Abraham in Genesis 13 and again at the time of Jacob in Genesis 34. Canaanite means humiliated, humbled, or even subdued. In some of the previous sermons, I identified Perizzite as a breach or eruption coming from Paratz. That is not correct. Rather, it comes from Perazzi, a hamlet dweller. Thus, it means something like villagers or dwellers in an open country. Verse 4 continues, and they killed 10,000 men at Bezek. Vayakum bevezek aseret alapim ish, and struck in Bezek 10,000 men. The name Bezek comes from the noun bazak, signifying a flash of lightning. However, this is not in reference to heat, noise, or illumination, but the scattering effect. Abarim notes that the unused Hebrew verb bazak probably meant to scatter and that its Aramaic counterpart does mean this. The noun is found only once in scripture. From Ezekiel 1, as for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearances of torches going back and forth among the living creatures. The fire was bright and out of the fire went lightning, barak, and the living creatures ran back and forth in appearance like a flash of lightning, bazak. Hence, it means scattering or flash of lightning. The number 10,000 should be taken as a large but indeterminate number. However, being a multiple of 10, it implies that nothing is wanting, that the number and order are perfect, that the whole cycle is complete. That's E.W. Bullinger. It appears that these words anticipate the next verse. In other words, the battle is described in its overall victory, and then the details are filled in. 
If this is not the case, then it would mean that Bezek, which is only elsewhere mentioned in 1 Samuel 11, is a district rather than a city. If so, then two separate events are described between these two verses. Either way, verse 5, and they found Adoni Bezek in Bezek and fought against him. And they found Adoni Bezek in Bezek and fought in him. The word Adoni is not a name, but a title. Adon means master, sir, lord, and the I makes it possessive. Thus it is my lord or lord of. Therefore, the entire name is either Lord of Scattering or My Lord of Scattering or Lord of the Lightning Bolt or My Lord of the Lightning Bolt. Saying they found him may mean that they came upon him suddenly and completely surprised him. Also, saying fought against him is a way of saying that they fought against his entire army. The singular speaks of all under him. As such, it appears that the entire army was completely unprepared for what came upon them. Verse 5 continues, And they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Again, as normally, it is singular. And they struck the Canaanite and the Perizzite. The meaning is that the Canaanites and Perizzites were completely defeated. Not that every one of the people groups was killed. Both names will be seen again later in Scripture. Verse 6, Then Adoni Bezek fled. And they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. There is no way to satisfactorily translate this clause in English. There is one word, bohen, to describe both thumb and big toe. A literal translation using one word would be his thumbs, hands, and his feet. Of this, Adam Clark and others say that he might never be able to draw his bow or handle his sword, and great toes that he might never be able to pursue or escape from an adversary. This cannot be the reason. If it were, it would mean that they would do this to every foe that they encountered. That would be similar to what is recorded by Cambridge. They say, a barbarity frequently practiced in ancient warfare to mark the humiliation of the captives and prevent them from further mischief. Thus, the Athenians are said to have decreed that the right thumb of every agent, uh, I can't even pronounce that word, every person from that location taken prisoner should be cut off that they may be incapable of carrying a spear, but not incapable of working an oar. This is the only time that this punishment is meted out in scripture. And thus, it cannot be that they were worried about this guy fighting back, running away, or any other such thing. Verse 7, and Adoni Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to gather scraps under my table. More precisely, it reads, 70 kings' thumbs, their hands and their feet cut off have been gathering under my table. Of this, Charles Ellicott says, the peculiar appropriateness of the punishment in this instance arose from the lex talionis, or law of equivalent punishment, which Moses had tolerated as the best means to limit the intensity of those blood feuds. That only applied to those under the law. This may be a case of he got what he dished out, but it is not a case of judgment under the lex talionis, except as it would apply to an offense against God himself. As for the number 70, being a multiple of 7 and 10, Bollinger says it signifies perfect spiritual order carried out with all spiritual power 
and significance. Both spirit and order are greatly emphasized. As for his offense against God, this is what he acknowledges. Verse 7 continues, as I have done, so God has repaid me. Ka'ashur asiti ken shilam li Elohim, according to which I have done, thus repaid to me God. How does one explain this when it was a common practice among the Athenians and other people groups? It isn't like God repaid all of the others who did this in the same manner, and yet Adoni Bezek ascribes it to the doings of God. Two possible answers seem to make sense. He could be saying, thus repaid to me gods. The word Elohim can be referring to one God or many, the true God or false God. He could be saying that the gods of his enemies have repaid him as he has done to those men who served them. Or he could be acknowledging Israel's God as the true God. As Israel is the Lord's people, what they have done is to be considered as if it were done by God. Israel must have heard of Adoni Bezek's common practice and decided that they would do to him what he had done to others. This is not unlike what is seen in 1 Samuel 15 and elsewhere. From 1 Samuel 15, but Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agog in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. It is also how the Lord dealt with Babylon, as noted in the book of Jeremiah. Because the plunderer comes against her, against Babylon, and her mighty men are taken, every one of their bows is broken. For the Lord is the God of recompense. He will surely repay. This same thought carries into the New Testament as well. Paul says that it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. That's 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 6. Such things as this demonstrate that God is just and fair. Whether in this life or in the next, every offense will be judged and brought to account. As for Adoni Bezek, verse 7 continues, then they brought him to Jerusalem and there he died. These words here are not unlike those of 1 Samuel 17. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. Jerusalem was not under Israel's control at the time when David did this, and it was not under the control of Israel at the time of Adoni Bezek's capture. There are various views about why they brought him to Jerusalem, but the next verse seems to explain the matter. Judah will fight against Jerusalem and take it, striking it with the edge of the sword and setting it on fire. Adoni Bezek may have been brought there as an example of what those in Jerusalem could expect when they were overthrown. Ellicott says that they may have even spared his life, sending him to Jerusalem to be as a living monument of God's vengeance. This would, one, presuppose that he was from Jerusalem, and two, be a violation of the law of Moses. It says in Deuteronomy 7, when the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess, and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them. So Ellicott cannot be right in his analysis. Verse 8, now the children of Judah fought against Jerusalem and took it. Va'yuchamu b'nei Yehuda b'rushlim va'yuktu otah, 
and fought sons Judah in Jerusalem and took her. The King James Version, following the Geneva Bible, incorrectly states this in the past tense, had fought and had taken. The supposition is that this is referring to Joshua 12, verse 10, where it noted that the king of Jerusalem was defeated. Just because a king is defeated in battle, it does not mean that the city was taken. Nor does Joshua 10, where the battle is described, say anything about that. This is an action now being taken by Judah. As for the name, Jerusalem, it has a variety of meanings, but foundation of peace is sufficient. As for the city, verse 8 finishes with, they struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. The terminology is rare here. And they struck her to mouth sword and the city cast in the fire. The city was taken and the inhabitants were put to the sword. After that, it was as if the city was literally picked up and tossed into a burning fire. Despite this, Israel will not gain full control of the city until the time of David. Jebusites continued to dwell there, and it is called Jebus in Judges 19. It is during this siege and destruction that Adonai Bezek finally bought the farm. Adonai Bezek will never bother again. He is finished up and is seen as last. He has caused trouble to many, many men, but he is dead. His time has passed. A new leader is taking control, and a new direction is laid out ahead. On him we can every care and worry roll, because Adonai Bezek, our foe, is dead. The enemy can no longer afflict us. We have a new hope because he is dead. Thank God for our Lord, our precious Jesus. Thank God that he is there as our head. Our third thought today is cool even nifty typology. This passage follows directly after Joshua. Therefore, the previous book is alluded to by noting the death of Joshua. The Lord is salvation in verse 1. That looks to the death of Christ, the Lord who is salvation. Obviously, Jesus' resurrection can't be noted in an Old Testament passage like this because Joshua is still in the ground. But Jesus' death includes his resurrection, so it is implied. After his death, a war is required. Paul clearly notes this several times in several ways concerning a war that we're in. He notes that we are soldiers and the implements of warfare we use. He directs Timothy to wage the good warfare, 1 Timothy 1.18, and so on. The question is, who will go up first? Literally, it said, in the beginning, to fight the Canaanites. But even before the question, it said, asked sons Israel in Jehovah. It is a picture of those in Christ. As for noting the Canaanites, humbled or subdued, they are already defeated by Christ, as will be seen in a minute, but who still have to be defeated in the ongoing war that Christ has won. Does everybody understand that? The enemy is defeated, but we are still in a war and we are engaging in warfare. Just because the enemy is defeated doesn't mean the war doesn't continue on. You got to get the picture right. The response to who will engage the war first is Judah shall go. Judah here is synonymous with Jewish believers, the first to believe in Jesus. Paul then further explains their state in Romans 2 by making a pun on the name of Judah through the use of the word praise. He says, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. 
but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise, think of the word Jew there, is not from men, but from God. Hence, Jewish believers in Christ are those being referred to. They are the first, literally, in the beginning, to begin the war after Joshua's, meaning Jesus' death. The Lord confidently tells them in verse 2 that the enemy is already defeated. I have delivered the land into his hand. Notably, it says in verse 3 that Judah invited his brother Simeon, he who hears. This speaks of anyone who is saved. As they are not of Judah, meaning the Jews, it means that they typologically include Gentiles. As Simeon is within Judah's land grant, it reflects the truth that Gentiles are included in the new covenant and are a part of the commonwealth of Israel. Ephesians 2.12, and if you don't understand that, go back and watch the Caleb sermons. It's explained in detail. Even though Simeon is no longer mentioned in this passage, the typology is set. Judah and Simeon will work together to affect the purposes of the Lord. As for noting the Perizzite villagers in verse 4, I can only speculate on that. Unwalled villages are defenseless and thus already defeated, just as are the humbled, the humiliated Canaanites. It speaks of defeat on their part. As for the number killed, 10,000, it speaks of a large but indeterminate number. Being a multiple of 10, it implies that nothing is wanting, that the number and order are perfect, that the whole cycle is complete. The war will be complete when the church age is done. Nothing will be wanting, perfection will be realized, and the cycle of the dispensation will be complete. The name Bezek, according to Abarim, signifies scattering. That takes us back to Genesis 11, even if a different word, puts, is used. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad, puts, over the face of the whole earth. This is no different than two different words being used for the same thought in Psalm 68, where it says first in 68.1, let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, puts, let those also who hate him flee before him. And then down in verse 30, rebuke the beasts of the reeds, the herd of bulls with the calves of peoples, till everyone submits himself with pieces of silver. Scatter, bazaar, the peoples who delight in war. Verse 5 then introduced Adonai Bezek, Lord of Scattering in Bezek, and they fought him, noting that the Canaanites and Perizzites were defeated. Verse 6 noted that they pursued Adonai Bezek and caught him, cutting off his thumbs and big toes. The thumb is used for grasping, and thus it is that which speaks of power and strength that can be wielded. The big toe is what provides support for standing and directing motion. These were taken from him, leaving him powerless, crippled, and defeated. That was noted as divine retribution for his own actions of having done the same to 70 kings. Verse 7. That pictures the removal of the power of the 70 nations noted in Genesis chapter 10, the table of nations, and their own scattering as noted in Genesis 11. Just as the nations were divided into language groups, they were united by language in Acts chapter 2. That power of the Spirit remains to this day due to the defeat of the enemy. The Bible is translated into the languages of the people of the world. 
In the establishment of the nations, the perfect spiritual order was carried out with all spiritual power and significance. That was reflected in the words of Genesis 11, verse 6. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. That cooperation had to be cut off because of pride in man and rebellion against God. The defeat of Adonai Bezek thus pictures the divine justice against that. Just as pride and rebellion cut off man's ability to wield power and properly move about, the Lord cut that off in man, restoring the ability to work with, not against God once again. Think of the power of the spirit and how Bollinger explains the number 70, where both spirit and order are greatly emphasized. The final note of verse 7 was that Adonai Bezek was brought to Jerusalem where he died. The city first in the law is the last place to be subdued. Irony abounds. That is actually completed in verse 8 where it notes that Jerusalem, foundation of peace was taken, defeated by the mouth of the sword, and cast in the fire. Jerusalem, the city of the law, and thus the city of boasting and self-achievement before God, as noted in Galatians 6.13 and elsewhere, was defeated with the sword, the cherev. It is a picture of Christ's prevailing over the law given at Horeb, Horev. They are spelled the same in Hebrew. Cherev and Horeb are identical. Casting the city into the fire makes a marvelous picture of the complete ending of the law. Thus, it is truly the foundation of peace. The place where Christ was crucified is the place where the law is ended and peace with God is established. The idea is fully supported by Paul's words of Galatians 4, 21 through 31. It must be remembered that it was God's law that got man into a pickle in the first place when the Lord gave Adam the law about eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in Genesis 2. Thus, those 70 nations pictured by the 70 kings of this chapter were affected by law. The presentation is totally consistent with the typology presented. It is law that separates us from God, not because there is anything wrong with the law, but because of our actions under the law. If believers were under the law today, we would lose our salvation lickety-split. But we are not under law. Rather, we are under grace. And more, because we are not under law, we can no longer be imputed sin, which is exactly what separates us from God. There are just a few verses in today's passage, but once again, the truth is revealed that what man needs is not more law, but God's grace. This is what is offered in the giving of his son for us. Let us be ever grateful to him for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. It's a marvelous story if you think about it. A king does something to 70 kings, it turns around and happens to him. 70 nations were divided. In Acts chapter 2, the nations of the world were brought back together by the power of the Spirit. And that continues on to this day. The war is ongoing, but as I said, we got Ray and Jess going back to Papua New Guinea to translate the Bible into another language. And Jesus himself spoke of this, is that everybody is going to be evangelized before he returns. That is the ongoing war that we are going through right now. It's already done. God has already done it in Jesus Christ. But we are continuing the battle until the end. The picture is very clear if you look at it. Anyway, um, 
I mentioned the law. I mentioned it last week. I've mentioned it, I think, in the Bible study as well. It's such an important thing for us to remember. The very first words ever spoken to man, as recorded in Scripture, are words of law. The very first words. And immediately after that, man violates the law. And we have been in that pickle ever since. We are all under law, all of us, because when Adam sinned, we all sinned in Adam. That is explained by Paul in the book of Romans. Therefore, we're already condemned, as Jesus says in John 3.18. He came to get us out of a state of condemnation. The very last words of the Bible. You have law introduced at the beginning. You've got grace to usher us out. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. You have a choice in this life. You can either follow law or you can come to the grace of Jesus Christ. And there is no other way to be reconciled to God. You will never make it this way. It is an infinite climb and you're already stained with sin. Therefore, I would suggest that if you have not called on Jesus to forgive you of your sins, that you would do so. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. That is it. That is the provision that God has given, and people do not like that. They want to know that they have a part in their salvation. They want to know that the people over in Islamic countries aren't condemned. Well, guess what, buddy? You're standing here in front of me condemned as they are. What you need is Jesus. What those Muslims need is Jesus. What the Hindus need is Jesus. Every person is separated already. We need to get the word out. And that is why I'm so adamant about helping missionaries. They're out there getting that word out to people that would otherwise never, ever hear the word about Jesus. Please, if you've never simply trusted the simple gospel, do it today. Jesus took your sin debt so that you can be reconciled to God. Please do it. Our closing verse comes from Acts chapter 2. And how is it that we hear each in our own language, now think of Bible translations going on to this day, each in our own language in which we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of of God. That's what's being pictured there to usher us into a new book of the Bible. Isn't that marvelous? I think it's just unreal. I was sitting there at the end of the day totally stunned because I wasn't expecting that. Anything but that. I was totally stunned at what came out of this passage. Next week is Judges 1, 9 through 15. The typology is a pretty sweet thing. It's entitled Upper Spring and Lower Spring. That'll be our second Judges sermon. And I will give you a spoiler alert. It is very, very similar to a sermon we did in Joshua because the same passage is being described in just a little bit different way. you got to really pay attention for the subtle nuances that change them, but it's a very similar, the typology remains the same, okay? The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It is he who judges his people according to their deeds. So follow him, live for him, and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? Now, I've got a question for you, and um, hey, this is really easy. Yes, I know, but this is really easy. This is really easy, so you have to raise your hand. Now, it's not going to be easy for everybody, because not everybody here spends time reading the Bible. Shame on you. But this is very easy, and uh, a lady made two of these for us. They are uh, potholders for uh, red, white, and blue. 
And uh, so I got one this week. And uh, I wrote her name. I got two things on the same day. This one I know is from Kathleen. I know this is from her. So um, the, uh, she made this, and this is for somebody in the church. If you can answer this question, raise your hand. Okay, let's practice, okay? All right. <laughs> Esther's Hebrew name is? Hadassah. There you go. I'm not going to throw it because I might get somebody in the eye. This will be over here for you. Yes. All right. Hadassah. Very good. And what, is, what does Hadassah mean? Esther. <laughs> yeah, it means very good. Anybody? Down on, uh, down where the projects are, I go to this road once every uh, two weeks or so with scrap metal. Rhymes with turtle. Myrtle. Myrtle the turtle. That's right. So Hadassah means myrtle. All right. There you go. Okay. Um, got a poem and we'll take the Lord's Supper. Judah shall go up. Now after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall be first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them according to your word? Now while I'm reading this, keep thinking of what we just went through. And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Please understand. Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. So Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up to my allotted territory with me, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I will likewise go with you to your allotted territory. And Simeon went up with him, surely confident to the brim. Then Judah went up, and the Lord delivered, giving the enemy heck, the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they killed 10,000 men at Bezek. And they found Adoni Bezek in Bezek and fought against him. And they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. For them, things turned rather grim. Then Adoni Bezek fled and they pursued him. So it goes and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. And Adoni Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to gather scraps under my table. So I confide as I have done. So God has repaid me. Then they brought him to Jerusalem, and there he died. Now the children of Judah fought against Jerusalem and took it. They didn't quit. They struck it with the edge of the sword, and they set the city on fire, maybe roasting marshmallows in it. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true, and we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to enter into a new book of your precious word. Thank you for the book of Judges, and I certainly pray that it will be something that will inspire and illuminate all of us, that we will want to pursue your word even more as the days go by. Thank you. Thank you above all for Jesus Christ, our Lord, who gives us hope beyond this rotten, fallen world where bad things happen to good people and where wickedness seems to abound more and more. You have got it all planned for us so that someday we will be redeemed from this place and we will be brought into your presence. And we thank you for that assurance that we possess because of the simple gospel that all we need to do is believe by faith. Thank you. Any harder and nobody would be saved because we just don't know how to do anything on our own. But you've done it all for us and so we thank you. Thank you for Jesus Christ our Lord and it's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen.